Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, happy Wednesday. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, of course, as always, sitting alongside my co-founder, Mr. Jeffrey Gannon. How's it going over there across this table? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going fantastic. We've had a lot of good responses lately on this podcast, and a lot of people have been happy with the content that we've been putting out there. So we're going to look to keep the train rolling here today. Uh, Before we do jump into that, if you do want to follow me on Twitter, Jeff has retired from uh, the Twitter, Twitter sphere. Yes. You've retired. Go ahead and follow me at, at Focused Compound. And also, um, if you do want to help Jeff and I out, if you want to help keep the lights on at mm-hmm. this uh, office that we're recording at, feel free to go to the podcast app on your iTunes and give us a rating and review. That yes. would make Jeff very happy. And when Jeff's happy, I'm happy. So if you want to make us both happy, give us a rating yeah, review. Rating review of the podcast. That's right. Give us a rating review. So today we've been, uh, or actually, so lately we've been getting a lot of people that have been asking us questions via email or on Twitter. And yeah, we get asked. Focus Compound is a good place to send your questions. Yeah. And we get asked questions all the time. So I thought for this, um, for this podcast, uh, I guess this sort of intermission before we have our next guest coming on, I thought it would be a good time to sort of go over questions that, we get asked often and sort of compile the most um, common ones and then sort of chat about it on the podcast. Yep. Okay, perfect. So for this first one, we are going to be going over ones that people tweeted at me. So again, if you ever want a question to be potentially answered on the podcast, feel free to tweet at me and I uh, I will pull it and we could talk about it on this Q&A or on our future Q&A. So this first guy, he's uh, his name is the Warren Buffett Spreadsheet. Okay. I don't know if Warren Buffett used spreadsheets, but the Warren right. Buffett spreadsheet says, how often would you recommend a long-term investor check their portfolio statements? Um, rarely, I would say. I would say it depends on... Uh, it. You don't want to look at stuff that isn't going to help you make decisions. So uh, looking at... Those sorts of things helps if it's going to help you make decisions about how you're going to reallocate things and, and stuff like that. Um, I think that I've recommended a lot in the past that if you buy a particular stock that you focus on looking at it at each anniversary of the purchase uh, instead of constantly. So like every year? Every year. For each position? Yeah. So you're talking like check the price every year? Of the, of the stock that you have? Yeah. Uh, you can check it more often than that, but I wouldn't consider whether you want to sell it every okay. every week, every month. So yeah. buy it with the intention of holding at least for a year. Yeah. I mean, with net nets, for instance, I have seriously suggested to people, do not, no matter what happens, sell it within the first year. Okay. I thought that you were saying just like, don't check your statements like ever. No, no, no. Well, let, let's talk, talk about this. So let's say you own 12 stocks. Yep. Well, if I'm saying make sure that you reassess each stock once a year you're now reassessing it 
every month, basically. Sure. I mean, it might not work out to be literally every month, but that's what I mean. Yeah. I think it makes sense to look at individual positions more than your overall portfolio. I think he's talking, though, like the actual, like checking the quotes of it. Like how often should you check the quotes? Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying try not to look at the quotes of individual stocks without an idea of reassessing it. Okay. So, right, a lot of people look at stocks to check where the price is. Yeah. But are you planning to sell it or buy more? If not, why are you checking the price? Yeah, sure. The, you know, that's my point. Yeah. So it makes more sense to me to really look at the price and reassess a stock, read the most recent uh, earnings transcript, all that stuff, for each stock on its own, rather than just looking at your overall portfolio. Because most of you, what you're getting is noise about what the market's doing recently. Yeah, sure. Regardless, I mean, even if we have a portfolio that's so different from the market, a big part of the actual uh, results that you get in a given month are just just what's happening in the market. That sure. really drives even a big part of it, even when you have betas and things that are totally different from the market. So especially if you have something that's more in big cap stocks and things like that, a lot of what you see in any given quarter is mostly the market. So I would say zero in on one particular stock and think about, like think in terms of like, Am I re-electing it to my portfolio for a whole nother year? Think of it that way. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that's a great way to look at it. I'm sort of on the other side of the fence. Yeah. So don't don't hop <laughs> over this table and slap me. But I don't think it matters, honestly. Okay. Like, I mean, like, I I think it, I understand the whole, like, don't check your portfolio often for a lot of people if they maybe aren't trained to, okay. I guess, hold it for a very long time. But I guess if you sort of have that, I feel like a lot of people say that maybe because Buffett says it a lot. Okay. But then if you look at, like, videos of... um you know, Warren in his office, he's, he has CNBC on. So, you know, he's at least checking sort of the prices like during the day of of the companies that he owns, right? He at least knows where they are. Right. We should say, as we were recording this, the market was down today. Is that Yeah. So, so I picked up Jeff. So today, (laughs) what's today's date? Uh, Today is October 10th 10th. and the market was down, um, three and a half percent, something like that. And, um, Jeff and I were riding together and uh, to, to record this, and I was like, "Yeah, did you see the market today?" And you're like, "No, what are you talking about?" I'm like, oh, "I was down three and a half percent." You're like, "Oh, really?" Yeah. So, um, maybe I'm just more addicted to it. I don't know. I just don't think it really well, you're, matters. You're also on Twitter and stuff like that, so yeah. you just are aware of it and, and different things like that. Um, I do. I think it matters. Yes, I do think it matters. Here's why: when I talk to most people, here's the problem: they there's this very weird thing that happens with people that I try to say this doesn't make logical sense, but they do it anyway, which is um, they think that they're going to do better than the market by buying a stock at a certain time and selling it, knowing things the market doesn't, basically making better judgments at least, not necessarily knowing things the market doesn't, but being a better judge of the value of the stock. And yet when they see stock price movements, their question is always what happened to cause that movement? That's the problem that I see. Knowing the price is not a problem. But thinking that the price is telling you something about the underlying business is a problem. So a lot of times I get things where people say, they reported a quarter, I thought it was good, but the stock was down 5%. Obviously, I'm missing something. What is wrong with what they reported? And a lot of times, the truth is, nothing is wrong. It... They were looking at one sort of thing, which drove the price of the stock. You were looking at another thing. And your perceptions, the difference between you and the market is still the same now as it was before. And I don't know why it moved the way that it did, except that people are judging it differently than that. And I don't think you should assume that um, the price movements that you see are helpful. And particularly the problem is big price movements and unusual price movements are the things that interest people. So we talk about illiquid stocks. And I get constantly people talking to me about small volume moves in illiquid stocks. Why did it drop 5%? Well, it dropped 5% because if someone wanted out of the stock, 
by getting out of a thousand shares of a $25 stock, right? They wanted $25,000 and they wanted out on that investment. If they want out today, it has to move like four or 5% because other, because the, the bid is not close enough to the ask for it to have any other thing happen. Right? Sure. And in big stocks day to day, that doesn't happen, but in panicky moments, it does. You see the same sorts of moves on big news things of whatever happens, right? So, like, um, the things that fascinate people are, like, so Donald Trump was elected president, right? Yeah. That first 24 hours fascinates them. And, oh, here's what the futures are and yeah. then where it actually opens and then this and that. And you see how much it moved and how – that's not really useful long term to know those sorts of things. No, so, I so agree with that. I think – looking at it from the perspective of what am I going to do with this price? I mean, we haven't exactly given the Mr. Market metaphor before on this uh, podcast, but it's the most famous thing that Ben Graham talked about. And it's that, uh, and, and Buffett talked about in his partnership letters too, which is that the market is there to serve you, not to guide you. So you imagine that you're in business with some guy who is a bit um, of a manic depressive sort of guy. And he is your partner in the business. And he decides that on one day when he's feeling good, he quotes a really high price for the business. And another day when he's feeling really bad, he offers to sell you his um, part of the business at a really low price or to buy your part at a really low price. Because the market, basically, you can buy or sell at close to the same price in the market. So the issue is trying to read into what's happening with the market. And that's the concern that I have usually. Not, oh, the market moved by 3%. And if you do news things especially, it's particularly bad because they connect two events that happen as if one event caused the other, right? So Mm -hmm. you'll always see some, and they'll even do it for things like the market moving one or 2%, which the market should statistically move one or 2% a lot, right? Sure. Just in terms of, you know, standard deviations and things like that. So, but they will always give a reason. There'll be some reason, you know, of course uh, about this is what happened with oil. This is what happened in trade talks. This is what happened. And it, you know, if if there was no news today, if they came on and said there was no news today, the market would still move a little. So th- that's the concern that I have is people reading into price movements and mm-hmm. reading into the market. Yeah. But do you think if you, I guess, are at the point where you understand that in the short term it doesn't matter, do you think it's okay to check prices often? Or do you just think it's irrelevant? What if you just enjoy following along? If you enjoy it, then go ahead. Yeah. I mean, people look at it and don't. Make different decisions. Look, I own some. I didn't buy or sell a. I didn't. Well, I didn't buy a stock for a period of about two years one time, and I got. I certainly see a stock quote on some stocks every single day, even when I don't know what the market did or something. That doesn't mean that I don't know what a particular stock did Mm because I was just looking at that stock today. Um, so you know, I, I, it's okay. I don't know that it's helpful. I think that it's helpful to think of prices only in terms of. I don't think it matters what price a stock is at except for the day that you buy it and the day that you sell it. And so if you aren't going to – if you aren't seriously considering buying or selling more of the stock, um, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to look at, at the quote. Mm-hmm. But I understand that people do it sort of the way that they would um, follow their sports team or something. Yeah. Right. And I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's more of the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have a lot of questions on behavioral stuff. Okay. All right. So next question, he says, what are yours and Jeff Gannon's rules of investing to avoid falling into the behavioral biases that make most investors do wrong decisions? He said, like, for example, limiting trading, checking stock prices, which you just talked about, or limiting noise. Okay. So you do check stock prices quite a bit. Yeah. It's not a problem for you. No. So what things do you do to, uh, in terms of like behavioral, uh, rules for yourself? Well, I just, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily know if it's rules. I just, I kind of have it hard coded in me that it doesn't really, 
I don't really care where it goes, I guess, and over the look. But if I own Snapchat, right, for mm-hmm. example, Snapchat's a stock that's like down 60-something percent from its 52-week high over the past, I don't know, quarter or within the past year. That would definitely probably be like, wow, okay, um, mm-hmm. maybe I made uh, some sort of error here. But, you know, anything that's probably like 10%, 15 I mean, even like, I guess, smaller than that, just daily trading movements, and there's mm-hmm. no big noise or big news or anything like that, I definitely wouldn't care. No, okay. it doesn't bother me. But I think that's because maybe it just comes with experience mm-hmm. where I don't want to say I'm kind of numb to it, but I just, it really doesn't affect me at all. And and I check mm-hmm. prices often. I don't, like I said, when that other guy asked me about checking prices, I said that my response then was, I don't think it really matters if you, I guess, um, understand how to think about markets maybe and how stock prices don't really reflect the the real value and if you are thinking about it on a five-year basis or four-year basis or just somewhere in the future that's not within like the next month or two mm-hmm. or just trying to beat like next quarter's earnings or whatever i don't think it really matters um and like i said i wake up and i check the futures every mm-hmm. single morning see where they're trading i check yeah. oil i check multiple times throughout the day i check the portfolio a ton throughout the day and that's just kind of you know, so I guess for you, it's good that, you know, if something ever is really going on, you'll know about it from me, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I, one issue with um, the price thing is, say you're looking at a stock and you're really interested in it. What yeah. I see a lot with people, value investors especially, is they get really interested in a stock at a certain price, right? And they go, oh, well, it's a little too expensive. I won't buy it right now, but I think it's really great and whatever. And then it drops a little bit. And then after it drops a little bit, I'm gonna wait a I'm gonna wait a little bit more. <laughs> wait a little bit more. Yeah, it drops a little bit, and they are now um, interested in it in a way that I think uh, may pay too much attention to the price and not enough attention to whether it's the right business to own. Sure. Right. Because they liked it at a certain price, and and now they're getting an even better price. Right. And that can be an issue. Like you didn't finish your analysis of of the company if you like the company enough. And so to the extent that I have behavioral rules about things, I think it's mostly stuff um that you have for yourself because you know what sort of um stylistic sort of things happen with you personally so for instance we talk a lot on this podcast about um value investing about paying a low enough price right? yeah sure um that's really important for uh, a lot of people out there not to pay too much even for a great business it's unlikely to be something that i would do though the truth is that um uh, that I just, in terms of how I buy things and have always, I'm really unlikely to pay uh, too high a price for a, for a stock. So that's not something that I have to worry that much about. Uh-huh. So instead, I have to worry about things about making sure that the quality of the business, the durability is high enough because a really low price would attract me there. For other people, you have to look at your own style and think about that. So I think a lot of people um, are willing to pay too much for a business that they really like a lot. And you would know this yourself, like looking at yourself and, and what kinds of um, arguments you get into with other people and stuff about your approaches to investing. Um, usually with uh, talking to people, the ones where they will uh, be surprised I'm not interested or something is some sort of growth thing that uh, is a higher price, right? It's not going to be some sort of thing that's really cheap. Sure. Yeah. So I have a bias towards value things. And so I have to be more careful and more aware of that about the possibility of buying a, you know, um, a cigar, butt. yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's good. Okay. Next question says, and I thought this, a lot of people have asked this one, Mm -hmm. how much work is done on following a stock that is already bought? So after you purchase a stock, I guess, do you ever revalue it? Do you, how do you sort of follow along with it? Do you just read the, the transcripts, check the quarterlies? What's your process to that? I do very, very little. And I've said this before and there, there's reasons for why I do that. So one thing is in terms of, do I revalue it? 
Sort of yes and sort of no. So sort of yes is literally do I revalue it? Yes, I revalue it all the time. But the Like how often? Uh, I can do it quarterly. But the simple answer is not really because when I buy a stock, I come up with a formula based on something ba- in the business to determine the value. So like um, if I own um, a Timberland company, then I would look at the – I have an idea of the price per acre. And so all I'm really doing is looking at how many acres they have and what their enterprise value is each time. For Frost, I looked at their deposits. For um, comp- you know, for a lot of companies, I look at sales and then my estimate of what their long-term average margin will be, things like that. So I never use a number that is just, oh, I think the stock is worth $58, like a lot of people do. Instead, I think say, I think the stock is worth 1.5 times sales or something like that. And so when I look, um, like Carmart recently, I was talking to someone about Carmart, and in the report on Carmart, which is on focused compounding, um, we talk about how much we think it should be worth in relation to its receivables uh, after their provision for um, uh, credit losses. So we valued it at something like 1.5 times uh, finance receivables. So every quarter, I get a new balance sheet from Carmart, which tells me what their finance receivables are, less their um, uh, reserves for for future losses. And uh, that number, you can multiply by 1.5, and you have a new intrinsic value estimate every single quarter, mm-hmm. right? And so in that sense, it's almost like if I had a spreadsheet, which I often don't actually build the spreadsheet out because it's so simple what I just explained. Yeah. But you could put it in a spreadsheet and have it pull the number and update it for you automatically. So do I revalue it every quarter? Yes. But really, it's a five-second revaluation based on a number I came up with in the first place. I would not buy a stock in the first place unless I had that kind of intrinsic value formula in my head. Why do you use finance receivables, though, for that company? Because that's how they make money, is uh-huh. their return on their finance receivables. So we're looking for something in the business which drives the actual free cash flow levels. Sure. Right? So in their case, finance receivables um, have a yield to them. They make money on them because people pay interest on them. And uh, some people use things like sales. But the problem with sales is that the company doesn't really make money on sales. It has a gross margin, but what it really makes money on and what it really takes risk on is financing these things. Because, see, if you take sales, uh, the company usually, uh, someone who buys from Carmart, is making a down payment of maybe 6%. So they're financing 94% of it with the company. So if you book all the sales at first and value the company on sales, that would be misleading. And not only would it be misleading, but if the company suddenly had an increase in sales and worsening finance um, uh, credit losses and things like that mm-hmm. right away, you would value it highly while it was doing that, right? So that's the danger from it. So we we find the thing that we think produces the income, basically. So like um, with, a, with NACO, I base it on the number of tons of coal that it produces. Sure. Right. And that's when I wrote up the stock and stuff, I talked about the number of tons of coal. Um, Greenbrick Partners, the book value of the land. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Greenbrick Partners, they looked at the book value of the land, which is interesting because that's not how most people would value it, I'd say. Right. Mm-hmm. But my thinking on that is what do you actually get out of the stock? And a home builder does not really produce free cash flow. It could, but that's not what they're going to do. They're going to take that free cash flow and put it back in more land. Sure. So in the case of Greenbrick, it's a question of what is the book value of land in like Dallas and Atlanta areas. And then you can analyze that by saying, okay, well, what should it really be worth? And do I think these markets are getting better and things like that? So we look at it that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. No, I think that's a pretty good answer. So next we are going to shift from emails. Okay. And these are um, emails that we compiled, like I said, no specific person, but most frequently asked questions, I guess you could say. Yeah, I just talked about this, that these are the most frequently asked questions that I get. Yeah. yeah. So this is sort of going back to our conversation with Nate Tobik and when we're talking about net nets. And he said, what kind of net nets should I buy? 
Yes, this is one of the most frequently asked. I don't know if it's like one out of four. I'm, or one I'm out surprised of that you still get asked. I mean, because it's not like there's a lot of net nets out no, there. No, it's a strategy that really interests people. And it's also because it's simple, as we easy get to calculate. These, yeah, as we get into these questions, you'll see a lot of them are very rule based and sort of like hard coded type yeah, things. Yeah. yeah, so there's sort of things like people are like, oh, there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. Can you, you just tell me what the right way is and then I can follow this formula? Sure. Right? Yeah. And those kinds of questions are the ones I get the most. Yeah. Right? So, um, so NetNets, we did a bunch of podcasts on them. I mean, we did a couple podcasts at least. And um, we had a podcast, I think, which was good NetNets versus bad NetNets or something yeah. like that. Uh -huh. um, so the uh, the thing with NetNets, let's see. I, I've talked to a bunch of people about NetNets recently. And the main things that I would say people can sort of, I don't know, get wrong about them or whatever is a NetNet is very, very cheap. It's not that important to know how cheap it is. It's cheap enough. Yeah. Um, you don't need to look for it to be a great business and you don't need to look for it to be extra cheap. One times net current asset value for a stock normally is really cheap. So you don't need to find one that's half of that. What you need to find is something that's just normal, boring, uh, probably worth more than that. You just need to something, have something where you have confidence that it's a normal average sort of business. And so what that means is that it doesn't have a lot of leverage in it, that it's not a fad, that it's not a fraud, things like that. And you'd be surprised most NetNets people bring me have something about them that suggests they are a fad or a fraud. Many are frauds. And a lot of – there's a – disproportionately the NetNets that people ask me about are frauds uh, because they're very cheap and they look like they're growing great and stuff. So that's what attracts people. How often have you bought a NetNet sort of on a standalone basis instead of buying a basket of them? Uh, not often. So you think it's more of a strategy where you just buy a basket of them? Uh, I think it's fine to buy one net net. I have no problem with doing that. If you find the right net net, yeah. I just find it's difficult. Uh, George Risk was a net net when I bought it. Um, I wanted to buy Pendrel, but they did a reverse split. What was um, the situation in George Risk? Uh, George Risk was just a stock, uh, that I, I probably bought it, you know, in rough terms at like $4.50 a share when it had maybe $5 a share in, um, securities and uh and almost no liabilities and then um the stock was also making i don't know probably i would estimate 30 cents uh, a share each year in addition to that so um you're paying a price that um was you know uh basically you could think of it as if you're buying the business and getting the cash for free or you're buying the cash and getting the business for free that was sort of the situation it was in and the argument against it would be well you're never going to get the cash um, and they're, you know, they're not going to use it to buy back stock. They're not going to go private, anything like that. So it really won't do that great. Um, but you know, it did okay. And it probably would have returned 10 to 13% a year or something, regardless of what the market did. And so that's basically what it returned. Um, even today, I think it pays a pretty decent dividend yield. Um, it's not as cheap as it was then, but, uh, you know, so it consistently paid a dividend. It, it, it's a, that's a really good example of what's just a fine net net to buy and then hold on to and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And the ones in Japan were that way too. They all basically paid some dividends. Um, they were all net cash. Almost all net nets I buy are net cash. I, I would say, say yeah, all yeah. net cash. And do you look at like the profitability, for example, you did with the Japanese? Is that sort of the normal thing? Yeah. How, I, the biggest thing is how um, many years for how long in the past have they been profitable? So that's my biggest gripe. That's also things when I look at price to book and things like yeah. that. Like I bought um, bank insurance, which isn't a net net. It was a um, below book value insurer. And people ask, well, how do you do that? And how can you be sure of that and stuff? Well, I knew it had made money in 28 of the last 30 years. And that, that all that was left in its insurance underwriting was the same stuff it had been underwriting for like 30 years. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
So that sort of thing is key. And the same thing with these businesses. The net ads I picked are things that have been doing the same thing for a while and were generally profitable every year. You don't want them to lose money. I mean, I talked to someone about this recently and I said, look, you don't want a melting ice cube. You want, if you buy the stock and then you sell it in one year, three years, or five years, you want to make sure the net current asset value is equal to or greater than what you bought it at. Sure. So it goes up. And then you also want to make sure it's not a fraud. And like I said, many people bring me ones that are that are frauds. How um, do you know that they're frauds? Uh, they have signs right away that they might be a fraud. That doesn't mean that they are a fraud, but as soon as they start talking to me about it, it suggests they're fraud. Like what? Uh, one that has now been established as a fraud, um, not a, not necessarily as a net net, but just a stock that people brought to my attention all the time, was a company headquartered in Greece, listed in Greece, and uh, where its main um, sales were coming in from China. Uh-huh. And that's just a very bad combination of countries in terms of uh, how that works. Uh, Greece is a very high corruption country. It's a country that's a little dangerous to buy stocks in there. Uh, market there. That doesn't mean that all Greek stocks are frauds or anything like that. It just immediately raises the chances of that. And then any company outside China doing business in China or a Chinese company that's listing in another country. So uh-huh. basically the story is to appeal to Westerners. Yeah. That China's this great growth story and things like that. That's, you know, a bit of a problem. We, we've talked before. Anything that's, you know, cryptocurrency, that's marijuana, that's that's any of the things that are popular at that time is like a fad as this thing that people predict is the future. Yeah. Uh, it could be today. It could be solar power or, or electric cars, or it could be any of those things. It could. Elon. <laughs> well, well, there's a lot of research showing that he, that's a legitimate business. Sure. Whatever's yeah. happening with it. But, um, the sort of things that have a great story for things today. Yeah. And then especially if you try to have things where those are marketed, the stock is marketed to people who don't know a lot about stocks and things like that, who maybe aren't from that country, you're marketing someplace else, you know, um, what about one time we were looking at a, a company that was based in Nevada, I think, and you didn't even oh, want to, you didn't even want to look at it. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I did Okay, I think we so did look at we did look at but at it, but yeah. you you were your ears were perked I should say yes so um, Nevada so so for those and we get have people listening in all around the world so they may not know this but probably I don't know half of the public companies in the U S or some or something like that are listed in Delaware and that's for uh, per, to, to help entrench management basically Delaware has sort of um, very shareholder unfriendly um, laws and things like that. But also it's just simpler because Delaware has a dedicated court, which allows um, corporate stuff to, to move more quickly and, and has expertise in dealing with that stuff. So they list in Delaware a lot. Um, and then otherwise companies would list uh, – they, they would I mean they would be incorporated in their um, home state or their historical home state. So I said on the checklist that we talked about doing um, and that I suggest for people is that you should always check the um, state of incorporation yeah. for a company and ask, is this their state that they were founded in? Is this a state that they do their business in now? Is this Delaware or is this the Nevada? And in the case of Nevada, Nevada has the, I would say, the best protections for management if they want to perpetrate a fraud. Mm-hmm. So, like, legally, the thing is that it's it's the state where it's most difficult to hold management accountable for actions taken by a corporation when, in fact, those actions were fraudulent. So in other states... It would be easier in court to make management uh, what they call to pierce the corporate veil, they call it, um, to make management personally liable, personally responsible for actions taken by the corporation when management's actions were actually fraud. So the idea is normally management is protecting all sorts of ways from corporate actions that are taken, that they didn't do these things. So if the corporation does certain things, you can sue the corporation, get money from them, but you can't um, get money from 
uh, management, management can't go to jail for these things, stuff like that. But fraud is not, uh, uh, when you commit fraud, you can't then have that defense basically, uh-huh. right? And it is um, very difficult, I would say, in Nevada compared to other states to establish that something is a fraud and to hold management responsible. So if you wanted to commit a fraud, you should do it in Nevada. <laughs> I mean, you should do it anywhere you want in the United States, but you should incorporate your company in Nevada. There's no doubt about that. That's some, that's some great advice. That does not mean that all uh, companies in Nevada of course. Are, are frauds. But, you've but just, it means you've that immediately a that's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah, and if a company is incorporating Nevada for no reason, that's a big issue. Sure. If you're operating a casino in Nevada, it makes perfect sense that you're, that in you're Nevada. incorporating yeah, Nevada. sure. But if you're selling, um, you know, if you make plastic uh, molds in Maine, why are you incorporating Nevada? Yeah, sure. That sort of thing, yeah. That's 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 funny. So there you go. There's the advice. If you want to commit a fraud, incorporate in Nevada. <laughs> incorporate in Nevada. No, that's just one of the signs, though. And there's yeah. lots of other signs, and we can get to that uh, later, I'm sure. Yeah, because that is actually a question. It's yeah, like you get it it's all like the time. These. Yeah, sure. Time. How should I calculate return on capital? Yeah, this is another question I get all the time, and I just wrote on my blog about it. My blog is Gannon on Investing, and you can read... Um, dot com. GannonOnInvesting.com, and you can read... Um, the first half of articles, they're the other, the full articles that focus compounding. But those are only things that aren't about specific stocks. Yeah. So I talked about this one about return on capital. And here's the issue where people want to do the proper math. Yeah, so I'm going to ask a lot of questions. Okay. So right. you, you go with it, and I'm going to ask sure. questions that I'm sure a lot of viewers are thinking. Yeah. So I get emails from people, and they include the formulas of how they want to calculate. And so yes. Sometimes these people know quite a lot about math and, and use it in their day-to-day stuff. And... Um, there's a danger in that kind of thing because it's very tempting to think, okay, I know the right way to write this formula. Sure. Okay. But the issue that comes up has to do with measurement. So it has to do with how accurately you can measure things. So if this was a physics thing, right, and we were doing the math, it's pretty simple for some stuff that we can accurately measure something. Sure. Okay, but now let's say that we're trying to measure things on like a quantum level or something, right? Uh-huh. Now we're going to start having problems with how we measure things, right? And uh-huh. that the, everything that we're doing, we're saying, oh, it's within this range of this or that or, you know, whatever, or certain periods of time. We can't measure at time that is, uh, uh, you know, in- infinitely narrow amounts of time, right? Sure. And basically, in that sort of way, that's what happens with return on capital, and people don't realize that they're doing this. So if you look at return on capital over 10 years, okay, and you want to say, I'm using chunks of 10 years, and then another 10-year interval, and then another 10-year interval, the formula they're writing is perfect. It's great. We can measure things with confidence in 10 years. And what formula? Is this like an unlevered free cash flow? Return on incremental invested capital. So R-O-I-I-C. Correct. That's what they want to use. And they're right that that's the number that you should use. Okay. Okay. But the problem with that um, is, and return on reinvested earnings and things like that, is that if you use it over smaller and smaller periods of time, it becomes less and less reliable, your measurement, and it becomes less and less um, predictive of the future. So what you need is a measurement that is predictive of the future and that you can measure with some sort of confidence. And you can't do that over shorter and shorter periods of um, over time. Sure. And they often want to do it over one year, and, and that's a real problem. So th- that's an issue. And on the other hand, people could say, well, looking back over 10 years, the, the things could change. And these next 10 years could be completely different than the last 10 years. So don't I want the most recent information? And the answer is yes. But even then, you have to at least use a three-year average. And then you have to think about like return on invested capital. 
And you always use a three-year average, even when we calculate like what, how much free cash flow they Absolutely. purchase yeah. or you they produce, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. But when, how do you calculate ROIIC? Do you use EBIT, like the, the Greenblatt example? Do you use net income? Do you use some sort of cash flow measure to? The most important one is cash flow. So the okay. actual one that works in the economy is um, the cash return on invested uh, capital that comes in cash form. So it's what's the cash that I'm putting out and then what's the cash that I'm getting back. Got it. And it's easy to do that on sort of um, models that the company comes up with on their own. So in a recent email to someone, I responded by talking about Cheesecake Factory. Cheesecake Factory explains how much it'll cost. They'll say, okay, well, we think it'll cost us $8 million to um, have a new store. They also have the lease, but the lease is a rental expense each year and is not a capital outlay, right? Mm -hmm. But in cash, we have to put $8 million out. Sure. Okay. So they calculate their return on the $8 million by saying how much then of um, uh, free cash flow do we generate in that? So let's say that after taxes and stuff, they generate $2 million on that, right? Well, that $2 million divided by $8 million, gives 25%. You, got it. Right. Yep. Okay. So one-fourth of it, so 25%. So they're now saying that we have a 25% uh, cash return. Now, that is a leverage return because they've taken on a fixed cost that they will pay the rent no matter what. In Cheesecake Factory, it's often related to their sales level, though, so that might not be that important. Okay. But what I'm saying is they would calculate that they have that 25% return or something. In Cheesecake Factory's case, it's actually lower than what I just said, but the math is simpler if I say it the way I just did. Yeah, so, sure. So that's what we'll do. Um, <laughs> we don't want to do You read them that's the presentation. <laughs> yeah. That's where it is. <laughs> so um, so anyway, so that's a good example. Yeah. And I talked about supermarkets and things like that, the cash payback period on it. So with things like chains, um, so like store chains and uh, restaurant chains, movie theaters, things like that, it's fairly easy to get information about what the company's targeting and then to check if that's really accurate. So we did a, uh, talked about lifetime fitness, things like that. They have a, numbers that they predict for their gym and how much their return will be and things like that. Every supermarket has information about that. Um, and sometimes it takes a long time. So in the case of like a supermarket, um, like, uh, in a previous podcast, we talked about voter supermarket, right? In an interview. Yep. So that is a case where many of their leases run 20 to 40 years with a, uh, extension of at least one or two extensions of 10 years possible for the company. In some cases they could have the place for 60 years, right? When they first build it, they often will not get back their original, um, investment in cash for the first five years. But after that, it'll be quite profitable if it succeeds. So the questions you have to ask are things like, okay, so what percentage of their new supermarkets actually succeed to make it past year five? And then once they do, how much, what are their returns like? And you can find that for so many companies where you can have a lot of confidence in their return on capital. Like an example I want to give is um, Howden Joinery in the UK. That's when everyone listening to this should go look up, read their annual report. It's an excellent annual report. It explains their business model very well. But it explains what kind of returns they have on each location over time. Or Carmart. Um, is another good example because they break down the lots by age. So the lots can make more money, not when they're one year old, but when they're 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have an idea you can follow sort of the, the return on it over time that way. So that's really the way to do it. And it's helpful if it breaks it down into that sort of model and you understand how they're going to spend it. Mm -hmm. Now we talked about when we would uh, analyze a stock together, breaking down how much of the earnings are going to be reinvested in the company. And then how much are going to be put to other uses like um, buying back stock, right? So you also want to calculate things like, okay, so if they're going to buy back stock, what kind of return will they get on that buyback? The big issue that happens a lot with return on capital is that people bring a company to me where they say this has a really tremendous return on capital, but the truth is they're not reinvesting in the business. So it doesn't really matter what the return on capital is. 
for you buying it today, you're not buying it at one times book value, mm-hmm. right? You're paying five times book value for something that has a hundred percent return on capital, but isn't reinvesting in the business anymore. It's just buying back the stock. So you want to break down each of the company's uses of cash and what you think the return on that will be. So let's say a company pays out a third in dividends, a third in buybacks, and the other third goes to opening new stores. You use that model I talked about to mm-hmm. figure out what the, um, or you create the, your own model in Excel to the best you can based on past results. That sure. It doesn't give yeah. it to you. And you say, okay, I think they'll make a 15% return on each store they open. So that's a third of the money goes there. So this is going to blend. We're going to blend the numbers together. Then the stock buybacks. Well, if you're buying the stock and you expect a 15% annual return in the stock because you love it and you think this is one of the best stocks you can find and everything, then the company itself will get a 15% return buying back stock. So you add that 15% return to blend it in. Yeah. And then dividends, you say, okay, well, they paid out to me. Then there's a tax applied to it. So then you have to re- remove that part out of it. But then after that, what is my return going to be? So if you think you can make 10% a year in other stocks or something, and then you're going to pay a 15% tax or whatever, then you say, okay, well, 8.5% is what I'm going to make on dividends paid to me. So then it's a third 15%, a third 15%, a third 8.5%. You blend them together, and that's overall what you expect as a shareholder which is the number that matters. Yes. Okay, so the number about the return on capital that we saw inside the business does not matter in the same way as the number I just gave you. That number is the one that matters. The return on capital to you. The to total you, return to you. To you as the shareholder, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because what ma- it does not matter at all what the return on capital was at any point except once you bought into the stock. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter what they used to achieve on their returns on capital. And it does not matter what their stated book value is. This is something else I talked about recently with people. We in the manager accounts have two stocks where land, which is the most important asset for each company in these cases, is held at um, values that are at least 100 years old in some cases, yeah. 80 to more than 100 years old, some cases much more than 100. So um, you can imagine that a dollar in value of uh, the land 100 years ago is in today's um, money $20 or something like yeah. that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can imagine that 95% at least of the value of a dollar has disappeared over time in real terms over 100 years. So that number just doesn't matter, right? Calculating the return on capital using that old capital number doesn't matter. And you'll see that a lot with, with companies where that happens. It, but that doesn't matter because they are not buying new land if you're buying the stock today. Sure. I mean, in those cases, they're really not in those particular stocks. So you don't have to worry about what the return on land is today because they're not buying new land. All you're getting is the cash flow. You already own the land. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it would be completely different if the company was planning to use the cash flow to buy new land like a home builder would do. Mm -hmm. As soon as they make profit, they just buy more land. Sure. So you need to figure out what their return on land is now because that's where they're reinvesting all their earnings. So it also comes from understanding the story too, I guess, right? And what they're going to do because a home builder, you're going to treat differently than the other land banks that we just, you just referenced where they already own the land and that's not their Mm -hmm. plan going forward to buy more land. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we talked about uh, CarMart, you know, why would you value CarMart on the receivables, which is how I would do it. Because what happens is the receivables per share is what they grow. So over time, what CarMart has chosen to do is they grow their receivables per share. They make more and more loans because they sell more and more cars. And then whatever other cash flow they have left over, they buy back stock. So what happens is that what's compounding inside the company is receivables per share. So as a shareholder, what you're tracking is the growth in receivables per share. That's the number that matters because that's always the number that's producing the free cash flow in the future. Sure, right? yeah. mm-hmm. With a home builder, the number that should be going up over time if it's doing a good job is really the land value per share that you own. Mm-hmm. So you should end up owning more and more real land. 
and that should end up having a higher and higher value over time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. Next question. How should I do a DCF? This is a very common question. <laughs> very, very common question. Uh, I don't really do DCF. So we've talked about that before that I don't do them. And um, there's a few reasons why I don't do them. Uh, in terms of the emails I get from people, they always talk to me about, well, look at this DCF and is it okay? And, and um, don't you think it makes a lot of sense to do it this way? And it's a very formal way of doing it. So a DCF is a discounted cash flow calculation, um, which is you figure out what you think the future cash flows of the company will be for a long period of time, which is usually used by applying growth rate to it. Um, and then you discount that back. And I certainly have talked about future cash flows before in a recent um, article, blog post that I did um, on uh, Amazon, uh -huh. right? So I talked about the value of a customer. Sure. And that's something that I would do a lot is what do you, I think the lifetime value of a customer is. And so it depends on things like retention rate. Um, but the issue there is that um, it depends on the assumptions that you're making. So either you're making assumptions that, like you're making assumption like the discount rate. So that's a good example. What's the right discount rate? So the right discount rate for you as an investor making this decision is going to be like 10% or something. So the opportunity cost? Yeah, the opportunity cost. So for you, the opportunity cost is going to be like the S&P 500 or more. So what, you're taking what you think the S&P 500 could do over a prolonged period of time? Is that the way you think about it? Yeah, because think about yeah. it this way. So let's say, uh, I just said there's taxes on dividends, which is true. Mm -hmm. But let's put it this way. You could sell the stock or receive a dividend instead of them reinvesting in the business. So from your perspective, not the company's perspective, but your perspective, uh, your opportunity cost is what's determining whether you're better off with them paying everything out to you or reinvesting in the business. So it's going to be a high number. And then um, what you have happen is that often with these DCFs that I see, the truth is that they formalize a lot of things by putting in all these numbers and that makes it look good. Yeah. But the truth is that those numbers aren't particularly interesting insights into the business. So like they'll say, well, I predict they spent a lot of time creating the DCF, but then they predict something like, I expect that um, after 10 years, the company will grow at 3% a year. Well, that's the long-term rate of inflation. So yeah. what you're saying is that I'm just projecting the next 10 years. And then after that, I'm just saying it'll grow at the rate of inflation. That's not really very interesting. And it, and it also could be very wrong. And you're just doing it for the purpose of being able to uh, easily do the DCF. It looks nice in the DCF, yeah. but really it's just formalizing an assumption that we all make all the time about things, which is, okay, well, I'm not looking out past 10 years, right? So, okay, let's just say it grows at the rate of inflation, you know, something like that. Yeah. What are your opinion? I'm going to take a step further mm -hmm. of reverse DCFs to see sort of like what the right. market's implying about the current price. I think that could be very helpful when trying sure. to handicap a stock. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've done DCFs, looked at reverse DCFs, like you said, um, for certain sorts of things. So, certain things like saying, well, how much is the how much is the market valuing per customer? Yeah. Okay. So, what kind of retention rates would you need, and things like that, or what are they valuing um, uh, deposits at? Like we talked about U.S. Lime or something. Those Lime deposits, what are they being valued at? And you can do a DCF to figure that out um, by doing certain calculations. But with any of these things, what matters is is it way off? Is it that you make these calculations and so you try to make a really conservative DCF where you're being really hard on the company? Yeah. And at the end, it looks like the company is selling for half of what it should so be. So still very cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Then that's interesting. But here's the thing. When does that happen where that's really interesting and yet it isn't obvious from other measures that the stock is appealing on that? Sure. That way. Yeah. You know, like like what will usually happen is something that shows up great on DCF will also show up great in the sense of like, okay, um, the you know lots of stocks trade at 20 times earnings right now here's a stock trading 20 times earnings and it's growing faster than all the others well that's immediately interesting even 
if you don't do a DCF. Yeah, sure. So I just think it it unnecessarily complicates things usually. Mm-hmm. You can do it if you want to, but there's many other ways to do it. And often a point-to-point calculation over a period of time will be at least as effective. So if you want to do a DCF for going out, uh, you know, into uh, perpetually out, uh, you can often estimate that really easily by just saying, okay, let me look at what the stock should be worth in 20 years. You don't have to do a DCF to do that. You can just say, okay, if it compounds at 10% a year, 15, 20% yeah. a year, mm-hmm. okay, if it pays out any of the dividends or if it doesn't do that. And you can do the calculation yourself as to what it will sell at and then calculate the um, compounding annual return that way. So there's no need to get into the DCF part of it. For things inside the company, I think a DCF could be useful, sure. So like a, a company making decisions itself about um, what is an appropriate price to pay to acquire a customer. Yeah, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. a DCF makes sense for that. For an oil company, for a mining company, what is an appropriate price to pay to acquire this asset that we think will have a really long life? Yeah, that makes sense. I mentioned supermarkets. They could be in a location for 40 years. So it makes sense to look at a DCF in those cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's from more so just inside the company, not think about it from like actually investing in the stock. Right. And yeah. especially makes sense for the company if they know what they can borrow at. Yeah. So if they can Well, that makes a difference. They have borrow. a lot more information too. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. How do you detect a fraud? That's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the most common questions I get. One of the very most You've common. talked about before how you think like a lot of people that contact you, they're almost worried that they're going to buy a stock and it's going to turn out to be like a fraud or something yes. like that. Yeah. Yeah. They're frequently. And this is a good question to ask you because you seem much more interested in this topic than I am. Yeah. You've read a bunch of books about frauds yeah. or about and short selling. And- uh, well, I've, yes. Short selling. And I just love disasters. <laughs> I guess you could say <laughs> okay. maybe it makes a good story. I mean, mm-hmm. a great story. It's like if, if there's a saying out there, it's like, you think people love a success story? People love a failure. Okay. Right? So you've recently read Bad Blood, right? Yeah. Bad Blood was a great book. Okay. Um, so, Bad Blood was a great book. Smartest uh, guys in the room or smartest people in the room. The story okay. of Enron. Yeah. I've mm-hmm. always been sort of fascinated with, with frauds and okay. I guess people that uncover them. I think short sellers are the good ones. Mm-hmm. I think are pretty smart. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So how do you detect a fraud? Um, there are just certain things that could increase risk, right? So sure. the first one is you don't want it to be in a company, in a, in a country that has a high uh, corruption. Um, so there's a thing called the Corruption Perception Index, and it's a good enough proxy for um, figuring out what, what countries are considered by a, uh, to have high corruption and which ones aren't. In general, countries that have lower corruption are, are safer places to pick a stock in. So if something looks like it might be a fraud and it's in... Um, Greece or South Korea or someplace like that, um, or Italy or um, Israel or someplace like that, rather than um, France or uh, Switzerland or Sweden or the United States or Canada or New Zealand or something, um, then there's a higher chance that it's a fraud. Uh, Two is if it's like, um, if it's trying to sell to people outside of that would be less knowledgeable about what it's doing. So like I gave the example of a company doing business in China, but then it wants shareholders who aren't from China. That's the kind of thing. Sure. That, it's like sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that it is. And um, for instance, I, t- um, some people think that when I say like these reversed uh, mergers of Chinese companies into U S companies yeah. are very likely to be frauds. They think, I mean that all Chinese companies are, but Chinese companies that list in China are doing something different than a Chinese company that's intentionally listing in the United States as a way to appeal to American investors who just see the word China yeah. and who put things in their name and stuff to suggest uh, different things about China, that, that these are ways to play uh, China and stuff like that. 
And uh, so always using foreigners instead of local people um, for your base of shareholders and things like that. Uh, I did a post about it once where I said that it's like many of the same signs of like psychopathy and things like that, which are trying the, the, the simplest thing is they're things that are it's like a con. They're things that are um, that it makes sense that, th- that you would want to see in a company, but it doesn't make sense that the company is saying it. So it's sort of things that that seem too appealing to you. Uh, but don't make logical sense otherwise. So, so it's like Bernie Madoff promising, what was it, 8% or 10% every single year with no, right. no sort of deviation. So from that, that, could, sure. that could be one, sure. Um, I mean, one of the really big ones are like um, having big names, right? So like what? So, like uh, big names on the board? Names on the board. Oh, yeah, yeah things yeah. like that. So there, um, knows. there you go. Yeah. Also, it's a company that suggests here are our customers and mentions all our customers, you know? Yeah. So if a company is saying like, oh, we do business with, um, uh, you know, uh, Pepsi and Johnson and Johnson and whatever things they're trying to make themselves seem legitimate. Anytime that a company's doing a lot to try to seem legitimate, uh, that can be a concern. Um, obviously anything, and this is surprising that I have to say this, but it's very true. Anything where the person making decisions at the company, one of the top people, uh, has a history of fraud. <laughs> I know that's shocking <laughs> yeah. to say that, but a lot of people, w- I've seen many people invest in something where they say, I know this person was accused of being involved in a fraud before, yeah. but I really think this is a good company. It's a legitimate situation, <laughs> yeah. right? If the person has committed fraud in the past... Red flag. Don't buy that company. Yeah. Just move on. <laughs> move on. Don't do it. Yeah. So, and, and I say that seriously because I can think of two examples of someone who's, who was um, wanted in Hong Kong uh, at, at some point and um, ended up running a company in the United States or being uh, a major shareholder in the United States. And people still um, value investors and things like that still want to look carefully at it and figure out if it's really a fraud or is it not a fraud, yeah. you know, whether it's a fraud or not, it's now being controlled in part by someone who commits fraud. Yeah. So don't do that. Yeah. Right. Steer clear. Yeah. Steer clear. So um, that's another one. Uh if the accounting is complex, that can be an issue too. Where you just can't understand it? Yeah. Um, not just that you can't understand it, but they seem to be avoiding gap sorts of numbers and instead presenting something else, drawing your attention away to that. Um, I There are many things where I don't necessarily think that it's a fraud that way, but it is potentially a problem. So um, I was talking about Carmart recently, which I think has pretty simple accounting and yeah. it's pretty easy to follow that way. There's another company, which I won't say the name in the same sort of business, not exactly the same, but, but making subprime, uh, were involved in the same thing, which is that they're the results of how many subprime loans go bad has a big effect on the company and their accounting is very complicated and doesn't seem to be following sort of, um, gap, uh, how you'd expect to do it. So mm-hmm. like if they asked me to prepare their accounts, right the way that I would suggest is not how they choose to do it and not how they choose to present it to investors. So that's uh, a question worth thinking about. Uh, there are companies that do things like that where they adjust EBITDA a lot or they say our adjusted free cash flow or adjusted owner or anything, and they yeah. talk a lot about that stuff, but they don't mention other things about what's happening. Um, so those are potentially a concern. When you see the reverse, um, that's helpful. So when the company goes out of its way, to adjust numbers down, uh, th- that to avoid someone overcounting something, mm-hmm. that's often a good sign. Like uh, NACO did that in one case where they wanted to point out to people that you would get the wrong cash flow number because they received cash as guarantee from someone. They made a guarantee to a customer, and the customer in exchange had to hand over cash immediately to them, a lot of money. They pointed that out. 
Um, I remember that there was a company, Energizer Holdings, which um, when I would say always to point out um, if there was a hurricane or something like that, you sell more batteries. And they always wanted to point out that this distorted their earnings. And so they always gave the actual earnings. And then they said, um, and this is adjusted what the earnings would be if it wasn't for those events. Yeah, so normalizing right. it. Right. Yeah. A lot of companies don't do that. They'll say something like, well, we would have made normal. more money if it didn't rain. Yeah, sure. But then when they have a quarter for a restaurant that operates things outdoors and stuff, they won't say, uh, we would have made less money yeah, if sure. there had been a normal amount of rain this quarter. Yeah. Right? So anything like that makes sense. Um, you know, you always worry about things like when they, if they're mentioning Warren Buffett all the time, people like that, trying to kind of associate with positive sorts of things that way. Um, any of those sorts of things. I mean, I think it's just, I, you know, the problem of course is that there's no perfect way of detecting it. It's sort of like lying or something like that. When people say, is there a lie detector or something? No, there's not a way to detect lies without, um, having, uh, false positives and things like that. But there is definitely a way to detect that there's a higher probability that someone's lying to you right sure, now. Sure, yeah. And, you know, in these cases, what I'm talking about is the probability for the, most companies you might be looking at might be 0 to 5%, and here might be 50%. We're talking about situations where you can detect that it might be 10 times more likely this is a fraud. And if it's 10 times more likely, don't buy it. Just, yes, yeah, Right. Clear. Now, yeah. it's true that if a company is 10 times more likely to be a fraud, it's still probably more likely than not, not a fraud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, right, like if, if most companies you look at it have a 2% chance of being a fraud and this one is a 20% chance, you might say, well, there's an 80% chance it's not a fraud. But I don't know really how to tell the difference between a 20% chance it's a fraud and an 80% chance it's a fraud. Yeah. But I know when it's not low single digits that the chance that this is a fraud. I know when there's something unusual going on that way. So what did you learn from the books you read about? I mean, it was more so companies... I guess, I mean, other than the stories from like Theranos mm-hmm. and um, like Enron and stuff like that, it was more so like companies that go or just like normal short selling. Like, so like companies okay. that could potentially go into bankruptcy. So it talked about like, you know, if um, like revenue is, you know, deteriorating and, okay. um, you know, tons of debt and all sorts of stuff, a lot of more right. obvious stuff than actually like detecting fraud. Yeah. Okay. But about fraud. So uh, what things got people to look the other way? Because I mean, Theranos is a good the story. Total fraud. Sure. Yeah, sure. It's right. a story. And I don't know the Theranos well, but from the very earliest times I heard about it, it was like... It was revolutionary. Yeah, you know, but it also sounded this... like it could have been a fraud. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, did it, it, was it ever certain to people that it was proven? No, I don't think so. I mean, other than, you know, whatever Elizabeth Holmes would, you know, preach to people. But right, no, right. I mean, they were incredibly secretive about everything. Right. Which is probably also another bad sign, I would say, as well. If they're very secretive, yeah. That I mean, be... um, I mean, to a point that's just like, mm-hmm. okay, you're about to sign a contract with these people or whatever, and you're not even going to show them that your technology or like your lab or whatever. Like, yeah, that's probably sketchy. Yeah. So a lot of times it's the big upside, and I think a lot of times it's the strong past performance that gives people confidence that it's not a fraud. So what I see a lot where people say that's not a fraud or that it can't go to zero. So that's the other thing we should talk about, which is a lot of times a company. Um, the, the biggest cases of this that I can think of in like public markets in the U S at least are not cases like Bernie Madoff where whatever he says, it seems like very, very early on that was a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Right. Um, it's not situations like that. It's something where there was a legitimate company. It was operating without any sort of fraud for quite some time, but over time it moved into more and more risky things to achieve certain, to continue to achieve certain things that became more and more difficult to achieve. And then what, they just try to cover it up? And then they cover it up and over time that sort of thing happens. And certainly in Japan, I can think of that, that that's always what happens about Japanese. And that's kind of how Enron was, right? Mm -hmm. With the market economy and 
everything yeah. that they would do. And yeah. So this happens a lot with finance related companies. Like I've seen a bunch where someone was talking to me about it and said, well, look, but they have this great 40 year record and the insiders own it and all this stuff. But you can see that they're doing different things these last 10 years than they did the first 30 years yeah. or whatever. But you look at the stock record and you say, oh, well, it's been going up at, um, you know, at 20% a year for such a long time. It must be a success that way, you know, and yeah. things like that. And those are the ones that are more likely to result in a huge loss for people. Like sure. Yeah. The definitely. ones that I talked about, about the Chinese stock frauds and things, they always seem to trade at very low PE ratios and even the net nets and things because people are always aware of some issues with them. And, and some of them were really obvious in terms of things like um, the companies would – Say they had very large cash balances, but at the same time have short-term debt. That's pretty big. And that's a really big warning sign, especially in countries where there might not be good auditing of bank balances. China doesn't have good auditing of bank balances. Um, so when you look at Chinese company, you always want to say, well, but what if there were, all that cash wasn't really there? Because there's, they don't confirm it in the same way that you do in, in other countries in terms of um, – I knew someone who audited some things in that part of the world. Really? Yeah. And the way that they um, – confirmed bank balances is very different from how they do it in other parts of the world. Huh. Um, so in general, I would say that that's an issue, right? So why the companies try to offer explanations for that, but often they'll say things like, or they'll say they have plans to pay a dividend, but then they don't really pay the dividend, things like that, right? So if you say that you have $100 million in cash, but you also have $60 million in short-term debt, why are you always keeping that $60 million short-term debt? It might be okay to have some amount in long-term debt or something like that. That might make sense, but if you say that you have net cash balances, why are you keeping this uh, bank debt? Because always liabilities are a lot more liable than assets in terms of what's really there. So you should always assume that the liabilities are 100% true, but the assets might not be in different cases. Um, so, you know, and then it gets down to the personality things. So I'll be honest and say that I strongly avoid talking with management. Mm -hmm. um, I try to be very careful about allowing management to shape how I look at the company. So I try to form an idea about how the company works without hearing how management thinks their company works. And I think that when you get into cases where you listen to what management is saying, that can be the big problem. And I think that's a problem with something like Valiant. Valiant is a situation where the biggest shareholders in it um, bought into the CEO and bought into the CEO's explanation of what was going on there all the time mm -hmm. and believe that you couldn't really figure out the numbers yourself without um, looking at it that way. Sure. So I think that that, you know, that often becomes an issue there. It's also some things are easier for fraud to happen, even if I don't believe there is fraud. So let's take an example. Um, GE, I just wrote about them for focus compounding earlier this year. And uh, there's nothing about it that suggests to me that's fraud. However, there's also nothing about it that suggests I can understand their accounting. Yeah. So, um, and if you read about it, you would see that in terms of like how they account for some things that have to do with like jet engines and things very complicated and um, very difficult to understand what could be going on and so much opportunity for if they want to hit a certain sales number or earnings number, they can make it happen by adjusting certain things in, inside the company. That won't change the cash flow numbers, and that's a big issue. Yeah, well, that's that, how anyone was. Yeah, that's a big issue because you look at it at the cash flow that they're producing, and in some things where you're like, this should be a really good business. This should have like nearly 80 to 100% cash conversion. And you look at GE and you say, why is this business unit producing 60% cash flow? Yeah. I think the underlying economics are what I expected them to be 
I just think the company may have sort of pulled forward some of that sort of thing. Now, that's not fraud, but I'm just saying that they they cared about reported EPS because analysts did in that company. Sure. That's a very easy number to play around with as compared to things like cash yeah. on the balance sheet, free cash flow. You know, what cash does the company have? What land does it own? What actual free cash flow does it have after it does everything, including financing and stuff? Those numbers are harder to fake. Like revenue is really easy. Yeah, sure. Revenue is incredibly easy, especially if you don't care about what margin it's at. You can definitely, you know, do that. And when you get into things like insurance companies and stuff, they can report any top line number that they want. It's um, like uh, Jamie Dimon when they were talking about taking away like um, quarter to quarter EPS or whatever. He's like, yeah, you can manipulate it. He's like, just don't turn the jet on for a week or something like that. He was, he was joking around, obviously, but it's just easy and manipulative. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, that's true. <laughs> no, at public companies, there are things where they're like, um, yeah, there's some public, I won't say what the public company is, but it say it. It no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but I, I know a public company where, um, you know, they said, uh, oh, let's take some of our team out for lunch or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they said, um, uh, well, uh, I, you know, I can't pay. We, we have to pay for a lunch <laughs> because uh, the, the quarter, this is the last week of the quarter. Sure. Right. And, um, and they said, uh, but you know, the first quarter of next year is really easy for us to meet. And so we can have all the lunches we want. <laughs> Cocktails uh, on me. <laughs> so they know, uh, but what I mean is that they, um, even things like how much, uh, you're having spent by employees course, on some yeah. things like that. They, in the third quarter is not a good quarter for that particular company. And the first quarter is a really easy number for them to meet because the business is seasonal. Right? Yeah. So that's an example of the kind of thing that happens at every company because of guidance things. And that guiding thing can create situations with fraud and stuff. When I mentioned Japan, the Japanese frauds that I've seen, the big ones, are all situations where they wanted to avoid admitting a small embarrassing mistake. And so to avoid that over time, it compounded and continuing to hide that fact instead of just dealing with that up front. Now, that's a little bit different than what happens in some American companies where they like to take that big uh, bath quarter where they are okay with admitting a big mistake yeah, sure. and then they hope to have good results after that you know so it's a little bit of a cultural difference there between japan and the u.s would you say also if management's so focused on the stock price instead of other metrics that i guess like business metrics yeah that's a really good question i don't know i mean i've seen some managements where it's okay that they're focused on the stock price longer term um and certainly we don't mind that the people are being compensated in that but yeah, I mean, because then it starts to be a question of investors' expectations. It's always the best if it's something where they don't care about the perceptions from investors and they're just doing their own thing. Yeah, um, you always want to see that more. Like, I mean, we talked about Tesla and the way that Elon Musk is um, compensated creates a situation where you think a lot about the market cap of your company sure. and things like yeah. that, right? And you think about sort of the investor perception of your company. Because you want to get a margin. Right, yeah. especially with a company like that where you th where you might be have a really high multiple or something. Um, but I have heard once where, you know, they um, management uh, says that they don't think that it's, uh, that their value is as high as it should be or something like that. And that's okay. Um, you know, I, I think that there are differences there. I've seen plenty of situations where management worries a lot about the stock price, complains about it, fails to hit a lot of things, isn't really that candid about their business and stuff, but I don't think it's a fraud. I see no signs that it's a fraud. I just see signs that they don't want to own up to their mistakes yeah, themselves. Sure. Yeah. Um I you know, I don't want to say what companies those are, but there's several that I can think of right away where I said, Oh, I don't really like management and how they talk about these things, but there's nothing here that suggests it's a fraud. Um so what I'm interested in is like how these people get caught up in that sort of thing, like, like Theranos and things like that. How do they justify that kind of thing? I mean, the people who are investing in, it. I'm not really interested in the, you know, the people who are committing the fraud. 
You're talking about like the the investors. Investors, yeah. They get seduced in it, I'm sure. I mean, just the whole idea of. But again, I mean, when they're putting out these crazy projections. Yeah. I mean, with Theranos, they're putting out these crazy projections, and um, even if they don't make sense, I mean, there was in the book they talked about. uh, I think there was an Apple board member or someone that was high up at Apple, and he pretty much he was being a board member, you know, doing his what normal board members do and kind of questioning Elizabeth Elizabeth Holmes, and she eventually kind of like booted him out Mm -hmm. you know um but i just think they get people just get probably caught up in it it's like anything it's like investing in bitcoin why do people invest in bitcoin that's a very good question i think one issue that comes up with like bitcoin what you said and and right there is in one way it seems like there's unlimited upside yeah see when that's the same thing with theranos yeah you know when there is eps you know it almost seems like that limits the upside because you go, okay, well, they trades at a P of whatever, and you know. But when you have these, like in the internet, when you have these companies that did not yet have earnings, but you expect it to have earnings in the future, you can project all sorts of things, because it's almost easier to do that that the earnings are coming in the future. Yeah, sure. If you have any margin, they have whatever. Then when you're facing it today, and you're saying, okay, well, this can really only go up this much, you know. It's the Silicon Valley world, though. I mean, yeah. you invest in these companies early, and all of a sudden they come public at these huge valuations. I mean. Yeah, well, that's the other question. Is it a mistake to invest in frauds? Because what if you invest in frauds as part of investing in a bunch of other companies that turn out not to be frauds? Is it okay? Yeah. Well, <laughs> probably yeah, not. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I wrote that memo, Cocaine Brain, and I think that that's what I find a lot with the fraud things that people bring me or the things that might be frauds, that they seem to overlook a lot of possibilities um, about it because they're so excited about the possible upside. Yeah. Um, I mean, but it's it's just like it goes back. It's human nature. That's what I think it is. Yeah. I mean, look at we're in Dallas, right? Mm-hmm. Who owns the Dallas Mavericks? Yeah. Mark Cuban, mm-hmm. right? His yeah. company, Broadcast.com, or whatever it was. Yeah. I've looked at their filings before. They weren't even profitable, and they there was, that was everything. That was every company. Yeah, but I'm just company. saying, it was it's it's human nature. I just don't. It's not going to change, right? But I also think that it's following the crowd in those things too. Sure. Yeah. When you talk about Silicon Valley. You're following other people that you think are uh, have good records of doing this. Yeah, brilliant. They, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's Elizabeth Holmes was a what she like a drop off from Stanford, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of glamorized on all these magazines and this Steve Jobs figure, and yeah. And and you see a lot with companies like with the internet things and stuff like that in, in acquisitions that companies feel like they have to do it because other people are doing it. So it makes sense, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, That's so, usually a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So I guess having a really big upside that you think is there and having um, uh, sort of following other people who are doing the same thing um, makes a lot of sense that way. I also feel like it's often something that people don't understand. I know this sounds weird, but I think people feel more comfortable investing in a fraud in something they don't understand. I can see that. Than they would in something that they do understand. Of course. So like if it's, so China, for an example, you can, these companies tell them all the stuff that's happening in China that's different. Oh, it's different from the United States or whatever. And they're like, oh, okay. But aren't, yeah, do you is. think most frauds are complicated situations where a lot of people don't understand them? Yeah. I mean, look at Enron. Mm-hmm. That company was incredibly complicated. If you look at their cash flow statements and everything. Right. Yeah. It was it was complicated. You look at Theranos. I mean, you probably couldn't look at a lot of stuff, but yeah. But I, I mean, what the they technology. were suggesting is something that seemed unlikely. Mm-hmm. Not that it couldn't be. A but possible, if here's the but thing, if you don't if, know it. If you looked at a company like Airbnb, right, a very simple business. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm sure Joe Schmo could easily figure out the business by looking at their right. financial statements. That's not mm-hmm. a complicated business at all to understand. Right. Yeah. 
you know, so maybe it's just more companies that are more complicated. And then there's stuff that, you know, whether it's verifiable or not, that's a lot of what short sellers do, obviously. Yeah. I can't um, wait for Airbnb to go public and read their, yeah. their filings. Yeah, because I'm so sick of reading these crappy filings of these companies that go. I, I All these companies that go public, mm-hmm. if they if I'm interested in it, because yeah. I like technology and everything, I'll mm-hmm. usually peek at their financials. But I'm really curious to look at um, Airbnb what for sure. So, yeah. 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 So, I mean, so I don't know what to say about it, though, because it is true that you have two sides to it. One a lot of people seem to sp- i don't think it makes sense to spend much time worrying about buying frauds mm-hmm. because i think that if you just sort of use a lot of common sense about frauds with the idea that if something has a much higher chance of being a fraud well i'm just going to ignore it so you just have a good bullshit detector yeah you just you you just it's not but it's not that you have to prove it's a fraud you don't have to have you that you're not clear. shorting the stock yeah. so you just have to say okay no well like when we were talking about nevada yeah you didn't that was a red flag to you yeah, so and I okay. won't say that I would never invest in a company that's that's headquartered in Nevada, but it was one of the things that immediately I say, okay, so it's headquartered in Nevada. What does that mean here? Yeah, sure. But I found companies before that I don't that they're doing unusual things, and I don't really understand what it is, um, and then I generally just avoid them. But I think I talked a little bit before about a company that some people thought was a fraud, and the more I dug into it, the more it seemed to be hiding that it had a lot more assets than it was actually telling people. And I could verify that it had these assets and it quickly depreciated things that weren't really, you know, um, I still would want to avoid the company unless I understood what was going on with them. Yeah. But for some reason they were operating in a way where they wanted to, um, uh, where they wanted to present their financials in a, in a way that was sort of misleading to undervalued the stock. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, quickly depreciate things which means you don't report earnings on them and also then those things aren't on your balance sheet anymore and i don't know why they did that exactly but it is something you know it's very easy to see immediately this looks different than other companies sure and that's so easy with looking at a bunch of different companies i guess also it's helpful to look at companies together that way um you know in groups of industries and things it's also just helpful to focus on things that you understand better but that's that's really one of the biggest thing. But that's it, though. If you don't understand the business, just uh, that. But that's probably a good fraud detector, right? If you can't figure it out and you don't understand, not saying it's a fraud, yeah. it's just a good step just to steer clear. Yeah, absolutely. And w- one thing about that is, like, I talk all the time about understanding the business, and I think people think I mean, like, how technical is this? Yeah. And like, I invest in a company that built nuclear reactors. But that's not understanding the workings of a nuclear reactor is not important to the economics yeah, of, of sure. the business. Mm-hmm. In the same way that you know, understanding about why people are buying this, who's buying it, um, those sorts of things, and how the accounting works and stuff like that. It, you know, um, that's what I mean by understanding a business. You know, mm-hmm. and so for a lot of these um, companies, I would say that the people who are talking to me about it don't understand the business i guess and i think that it's seen as really exotic almost all these frauds are the people talking to me about it see it as something really different um and not the sort of thing they analyze on a daily basis so it's not like people come and say oh this restaurant i re- focus on buying a lot of restaurant stocks so they you know like imagine someone said that and here's this restaurant but i think it might be a fraud that never happens no of course not it's always something like I've never bought a stock in china and i've never bought this kind of stock this but, biotech company but, yeah, or this or whatever yeah is, yeah yeah. We seem to be beating up on biotech. I think the last <laughs> three, Nate, both of our guests, I think, said, I don't really do biotech. That's true. Why <laughs> yeah. is that? Uh, biotech? Yeah. Well, biotech is... More high flyers and stuff. I think biotech is... You got to understand medicine. I think... How yeah. to analyze clinical trials. Biotech is... A publicly traded biotech company is often something that's like having a venture capital um, type company 
a company that would normally be financed by venture capital that's already public. But that's in the internet years that start happening, that companies that would never have been public by then have gone public, and you see that now. They're now public companies that would never be public at that stage in their um, you know, in their history. So, so people are thinking like venture capitalists in some ways. That didn't happen, I would say, before the 1990s. Those are more likely to be frauds. I think we can all agree <laughs> on that, that things that look like they would normally be financed by venture capital yeah. are more likely to be frauds than the kind of things that you normally see in public markets. I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about the importance of talking about assessing um, management, though, in terms of a fraud? Talking about, I mean, just from what I've read about, right? Mm -hmm. Are they so focused? What are they focused on, right? The stock price. I mean, you said you don't think that really matters, but I could see that being an issue if they're so focused on next quarters. I mean, in Enron, they literally Mm -hmm. had Quotrons like everywhere, bathrooms, elevators. Everyone was so focused on it. Yeah. And it almost created, I mean, you know, once you get on this fraud train, mm-hmm. you can't get off. You have to just keep doing it and keep doing it yeah. and keep doing it. Um, so I could see that. I could definitely see, I completely agree with um, when you said, are they trying to appeal to investors that aren't necessarily in the same country or understand right. exactly what they're doing? I could definitely, yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, tr- and trying to make your thing sound both complex and exciting. I think your product or your service, whatever it is, mm-hmm. not necessarily explaining it in the simplest way. We should have someone that specializes in short selling come on. That'd be fun. Yeah. Learn learn a little bit more about how they do stuff. Yeah, that's detect frauds and yeah, stuff like it's that. Interesting because people ask that to me a lot. Where I'm like, oh, I think this is a fraud. And they said, so why don't you short it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, that's not what I do, and um, it's also not what I'm interested in doing that way. And and uh, like I said, it's not that I think it's probably you know no, I don't get to the point where I say this is probably a fraud. To me, if it, I'm like, this is 10, 20 or more times it's just high a, risk it's of just a enough for you, stock. Yeah, it's just don't enough for you it. to steer clear. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need true. to know if it's, it's just like avoiding the big hurdle. That's it. Yeah. And often you can tell something's off about the company, but you don't necessarily know what. A lot of times it could just be slight and they'll need to restate some, you know, earnings or something, which isn't the same as having a, a fraud that's going to drop the stock by 90%. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. Cool. Well, let's, uh, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. We went over a bunch of questions that people emailed in and have tweeted at us. If you want to do that, you can email at info at focus compounding.com or again on investing at gmail.com. Yes. Or ask at, at focus compound on Twitter. That's the best way to do it. Go on Twitter, follow Andrew at, at focused compound. And more important even than that is to rate and review the podcast because right. Andrew has put a lot of effort into this podcast <laughs> in the last couple of months. I don't know if you can, if that comes through, but we've had some guests and things now. Got a lot of good stuff coming up too. Yeah. Yes. And it would make him very happy if you rate <laughs> and review the podcast and uh, Apple Podcasts. That's right. Happy Camber. So mm-hmm. that'll be great. Cool. So anyways, we have, um, I think we're going to have a special guest come on next week. Sometime soon, yeah. Sometime soon. Very excited about that. We want to thank everybody for listening. What's this? Our 66th episode, which is pretty okay. crazy. Yeah. So we're, we've are we come a long way. We turned on the option for everybody to go and listen to our old podcast okay. starting at 1. All right. So um, how did they do that? If you do that, don't judge because <laughs> okay. I, I I can't listen to it. <laughs> okay. But how would the one go back to the beginning? You just go on your it? podcast app on iTunes and, and, go, and go all the way back to one. Yeah. You go all the way back to one and you can listen to that. And if you don't have iTunes, you can listen mm-hmm. through Podbean, which is where okay. we host our site. I think that's in the show notes. If not, I will start to put our little website there. Uh, we could go back to one, but again, yeah, we've come a long you way. You could probably Google <laughs> focus compounding podcast. Yeah. Podbean. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I just want to say, you know, thank you so much to everyone that's been listening. Everything sort of really picked up recently. And I think it's been a lot of fun for Jeff and I. We've been able to connect with a lot of individuals and we have a lot of big plans and we're bringing on a lot of interesting people going forward. So I'm, I'm pretty pumped for it all. Good. Really pumped. So other than that, we hope everybody has a great week. We will see you next Wednesday and we will talk to you then. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.